Uh, I wouldn't want you to think that this was purely uh, altruistic. Well, I've been dying to give this lecture because I've been working on this for a long time. Well, not very long time, but it's uh, really, it was supposed to be part of the language animal, except that my publisher got impatient. I said, oh, come on, produce something. So I produced the language animal, and this was meant to be woven into it, is something separate, and it's precisely this issue of what changed in the Romantic period in, in poetics, because the language animal is written around a theory of language which was really started or created by the great thinkers of the 1790s in Germany, Hamann, Herder, Humboldt, and they also, at the same time, at the same breath, created a new understanding of poetics. They, they were, this is indissolubly linked for them, but it's, it's, it's separated for us. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I'll really start talking about that. I want to start off looking at the issues of poetics. I'd like also to look a little bit at the music which was interwoven with this poetry. But I want to come to a point where I hope I can say something relevant to this exhibition. But you see, I have to make another apology here that I'm not fully competent. Because I've thought about this a lot more in relation to poetry and music than I have in relation to painting. Now, this disability is to some large degree compensated by the fact that my wife is an art historian and has given me a lot of help in this. But I'm still not entirely up to speed. So really, in a way, the lecture is kind of like a dialogue that I'm coming up to the point of asking whether some of the things I'm saying about poetry and music have relevance to this exhibition and relevance to art. And I hope that in the discussion that will, that will come out. Okay, so I want to start off with what I think is the really big turning point or one big turning point, which again is Germany in the 1790s and the, this great romantic generation which are all together, partly at Jena, partly in Berlin, exchanging with each other philosophers and writers and critics, the Schlegel brothers, uh, <coughs> the, uh, the uh, uh, Schelling, and of course, Hurlevin and, and uh, Schiller and, and others. And, it turns out that although they didn't, although they influenced later on other languages, other poetic languages in, in Europe, in a way, the basic ideas that I find in them were rediscovered in other forms. So let me start off with what that shift involved. And then I want to move out from there in a whole lot of directions. And I hope I don't get totally lost because there are a lot of moving parts. But um, <clears throat> I want to start there. All right. So. Um, this is actually brilliantly described, this change, by an Anglophone um, critic, Earl Wasserman, uh, with a book published 50, 60 years ago called The, the Subtler Language. And he gives it in connection with Shelley. This is the Subtler Language, is a line from one of Shelley's poems, and Keats. But it, it shadows the basic idea, which is worked out with a lot more heavy German philosophy in Berlin and Jena in the 1790s. So the, the story I want to tell at the beginning, therefore, goes something like this. That, well, not just poetry, a great deal of European art for centuries and centuries turned around history, sacred history, sometimes uh, profane history, and 
uh, also conceptions of the cosmos, the meaningful cosmos, the idea of the great chain of being, which Lovejoy speaks about, there are different levels of being, there are notions of the Kabbalah, that the, the universe we see around us is ultimately related to the Torah, it's, it's as if we're created on the, on the model of the Torah, or conceptions of the signatures in things, things around us like flowers which link them to, to planets moving in the, in, in the sky. A um, whole lot of the notion that uh, Adam was taught an original, or maybe invented an original language, which is the really proper language which links up with the very nature of things. Now, these, this kind of understanding was not just something which was interesting to people as just uh, you know, interesting facts, what might help you to, on a trivia quiz or help you fill in a crossword puzzle. There was a very powerful spiritual charge to the cosmos seen in these terms. And getting close to that, getting to grasp that, was not just, again, an intellectual gain. Getting to grasp that was coming in contact with it, coming into sync with it, being part of it, being reconnected to it, which had very powerful spiritual and moral force, what I called in the, in the uh, sources of the self a moral source, something that can help you, make you, motivate you to be a better person. And so if we look at poetry here for a minute, I'll follow Wasserman, looking at the, some of the great poets of the, of the sort of neoclassical period in, the, in Britain in the 17th and 18th century, looking at uh, Alexander Pope's Windsor Forest, for instance, he sees, typical for this whole epoch, that Pope is in the process of invoking some conception of the, of the cosmos. Here it's the idea that the harmony we see is made up of a concordia discourse, of, of two opposite forces coming together and being reconciled to each other. And he's reading, as it were, Windsor Forest through that, through that lens, and he's reading actually the state of England through that lens. And we have here, by immersing ourselves in that poem, we're brought closer to and inspired by and linked up with this order of, of things. Now, this is what changes towards the end of the 18th century. It's part of the great movement that people talk of in terms of, of disenchantment. In the particular case, I mean, this is disenchantment which affects religious faith on one hand, but there's a particular one that we see which is undermining these conceptions of the cosmos. They, in some ways, no longer become really believable. Obviously, the development of a Newtonian science with a pure universe that were run by purely efficient causation with no specific meaning and so on was part of that, that process. But as in a certain sense, you can say that these orders no longer become really available for poetry. And so what happens is the development of a new kind of, of poetry in its relation to order, one which doesn't simply take an order as given and try to, as it were, make it shine forth, but which, which is related to an order Yes, but the order is merely suggested 
it's very lacunary, uncertain, tentative. It's not something that is already there, but it's something which is very powerfully suggested by, by the poetry. I'd like to give an example here, which I think, now this is an English example you'll be glad to hear. I mean, the, the great German example for me in this period is, is of course, Hölderlin, but <clears throat> Wordsworth, I want to read a short set of lines from a longish poem of Wordsworth, the, the call for short Tintern Abbey, I mean, lines written <laughs> over the river Y, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but Tintern Abbey for short. Well, this is, let me read, <clears throat> read this to you. And I have felt, this is him looking down over the valley, right? With the, with the ruined monastery and everything. I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deep, deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Now that, to me, invokes a very powerful sense of order in this, in this sense, that there is a force moving through everything, through us, through the world around us, through our thoughts, through our being, and so on, and we are linked with that. And, I mean, people are gonna react differently. This is one of the, great, of the great issues we're gonna have to look at, but for me, what this does is I have this very strong sense of that force there and being, at this moment, linked with it, really connected to it. But unlike Alexander Pope with the Concordia Discourse, this is not part of any canonically accepted doctrine. I mean, you can read it in the light of some canonically accepted doctrine. You can read it in the, perhaps this is a way of of nudging us towards an understanding of the creation of the world by God and so on, but it itself doesn't contain that. What it does then is something very extraordinary, is it in a certain sense convinces you, you feel very powerfully convinced uh, that there is something here of that kind, but you aren't given any detail and you aren't given any proof. The proof here, I mean, or the proof is the wrong word, the convincing power is the power of the experience itself. That you have this very powerful sense of the world in that, uh, in that moment. Now, here we have something very odd going on because the sense of connection is brought about by the poetry. Right? The sense of connection is something, it's, it's as though this poetry was something like, had the, something like ritual power. But that's true of Pope's too. I mean, Pope's writing gives you a sense of connecting up to that order he's talking about. It has that kind of, uh, it changes your relationship to this world, this cosmos. So it also has ritual power. But here, the, the, if you like, the only element convincing you that there's something here is this experience of ritual power. Now, this kind of discourse, this kind of poetry, is therefore something very different from his predecessors, from poems like, uh, like Pope's, because it's, in a certain sense, hanging there 
the sense of order, the incident order is hanging there on the, uh, on the, very, the very words of, of the poem. Now, flip to the German scene, and we have this concept of the symbol. This is a, the, you see in Schlegel, but actually it was taken up by Paul Ricoeur in our time <clears throat> in, in philosophy. The symbol here, in this sense, has this kind of creative force. It is something that connects you to a reality out there that you wouldn't be connected to without it, right? It's not as though you see something and you want to find a name for it, right? You want to find a designation for it, the way we do to the things around us. I see this and say, what's that? Well, that's water, you tell me, so. Very, very useful, yeah. But it's, it's rather that the symbol in Schlegel's sense is something that makes it possible for you to see something out there, which you couldn't without the symbol. And precisely in that sense, Wordsworth's Tinder and Abbey is operating like a symbol. So I want to get this special sense of symbol. It's not an after symbol, it's a before symbol. That is, an after symbol is I have some reality and I want somehow to represent it in a, in a you know, short and snappy way, like I'm Aesop writing, writing fables and I want to represent various kinds of characters. So I'm crafty as a fox and you know, innocent as a whatever, the, the cowboy, right? You have, that's the kind of, when you, after simple, you already know what you're talking about, but you want to give it a kind of snappy appearance. The Schlegel symbol is what I want to call a before symbol. It's, without that, you don't have access to this reality. All right, so now we have, poetry is in the process of producing these kind of Schlegel symbols and hinting at these deeper realities which are not really spelled out. And what this produces is, we can already see the forecast of the relationship to religious developments in the last, spiritual developments in the last two centuries, that nobody's gonna stop talking the language of theology, the language of deeper forces in the universe and so on. But this becomes a second kind of discourse that that interweaves with and plays against the first. And you can see how that kind of thing happens when you reflect, Wordsworth is a very good example of this. See, Wordsworth's poetry immensely moved all sorts of people in 19th century England. I mean, it moves us today, but all sorts of people in 19th century England who were terribly far apart in their deeper, ontological commitments, either to religion or anti-religion. You know, George Eliot, who was an atheist, thought he was wonderful, and, and you know, all the people around Wordsworth who ended up being very orthodox Anakins, thought he was wonderful, and Meredith, and so on. A whole lot of people, you see, could converge on being very moved by this set of symbols, in my Schlegel's technical sense, who were widely apart when it came to their understanding of what I want to call the underlying story, right? What, what story about the world and about God makes sense of, to them of this poetry working on them, right? This, this involves, of course, going beyond the situation. See, what, what uh, Wordsworth transforms is a situation, me in this valley, in this Y valley. He, 
doesn't go beyond me in this Y Valley to something beyond that, transcendent to that, which might be the cause of it or, or <coughs> facilitate it, right? Let's call that an underlying story or let's call that for short doctrine, right? So you have this powerful symbol operating in my immediate situation, if you like, the interspace between me and the Y Valley or whatever it is. And then we have attempts to understand, to explain, which invoke things beyond. Now, of course, there got to be in the 19th century lots of other underlying stories that weren't religious at all. Think of Schopenhauer, you know, the power of the will, the power of the will which emanates in everything around us. And of course, this gave Schopenhauer the basis for a theory of art in which the will is, is in a kind of ideal way portrayed in, in poetry and art, but in a music, which for Schopenhauer was much more important in music, it was actually expressed directly uh, in, uh, in music. There you get another underlying story, another doctrine. Nietzsche has another doctrine, and we can go on like that. But what we're now living in ever since that moment is a kind of two-tiered set of languages, if you like. The language of poetry, and I want to bring in music, and I think this also applies to, to, to painting on one hand, which is the language of the interspace of that immediate experience, and various doctrines which claim to explain, underlie, make sense of this, 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 this experience. But the, the power of the experience, the convincing nature of the experience comes from the effect of the poetry, music, painting itself. So we have, uh, now I think we can uh, already see a kind of link up to painting. I even made some notes here when I was reading the, the catalog, which is a fantastic, interesting catalog, though it's even more fantastic to see the, the paintings which we just saw a few minutes ago. But um, now, have I, don't, this is what I was most fearing, that I would lose the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there was a quote by Hartley, one of the painters, um, which you'll find on page 246 if you, <laughs> you, if you consult your catalog, where he's, he's of course, has a, himself, I think he had really a theosophical background understanding, right? But he says, no, I don't paint out of that, right? That's, that I think is very important and that's obviously inspiring me, but I don't paint out of that. I must create out of inner feeling, right? And this is on page 240. Uh, again, it's another painter, page 250, who makes the same kind of point, right? That um, you have here, what he's saying is, what, just like what dictates the words for Wordsworth or what will function as a symbol to create this powerful sense of connection. So what determines the painting by Hartley here is not reflecting on the doctrine, but feeling the direct expression through the painting, which opens up a certain sense of depth in the universe, if you like. So we're, it's an age which is like operating with two languages, two levels of, 
of language, of different epistemic quality, but connected to, to each other. Okay, so uh, these are, of course, the subtler languages of, uh, of um, Wasserman's title. The new languages that these poets are inventing are languages which invoke an order, deeper order, that they don't fully explain. They're, they're the subtler languages as against the canonical languages of cosmic order that people like Pope had to, <clears throat> to operate with. Now, to go back, I'm gonna shift back and forth. I hope it doesn't uh, get everyone confused, but including myself, but, but what, what continues, interestingly, if I go back to the poetic uh, <clears throat> lineages here, because there are many, is that almost all of them have this notion of there are two kinds of language. There is the ordinary everyday language that we need to get on in the world, naming things, uh, communicating to people, pass me the water and so on, or building bridges or whatever, on one hand. And on the other hand, there's the language of symbols in this sense. The language that has the power to open up this new kind of, <clears throat> kind of depth. So, you know, Novalis speaks about <clears throat> the ordinary language which really just talking about things and then deeper language where the language speaking itself. Uh, Mallarmé talks about uh, Edgar Allan Poe qui a rendu plus pur les mots de la tribu. He made the words of the tribe purer. There are, he spoke about la langue orphique de la terre, the orphic language. And so you can go on and on and on seeing this, this split between two languages, right? In the, in the theory, and what they're always dealing with is, in the creative language, is the language that I'm calling the language of, of, uh, of symbols. Okay, so a lot of questions arise from here, and I'm gonna place them out there, and I hope get around to them. Number one that people might ask, well, you know, why, why be convinced by this? It's just being convinced by a powerful experience. That's not very epistemologically kosher. I mean, <clears throat> why do that? And there are, very deflationary explanations. I mean, some people with a reductive view of human nature say, well, it's just some kind of pleasure it gives us, and we misidentify it if we think that it's something giving us access to something profound. Steven Pinker, who is a fellow Montrealer, but also one of these, <laughs> one of these thinkers, uh, his description of music is uh, auditory cheesecake. Okay, so you get, get the picture. Now, it doesn't surprise you, that doesn't convince me. I think there is something powerful here. And so I owe you later on references to ways you can argue for this, not just tell you that I, I move by words to argue for, for this. <clears throat> so I'll leave that hanging there. And don't let me forget it, but it's hanging there, right? But I want to uh, move laterally and a little bit introduce music to this, this story because it's like but also unlike language and together they work in a very powerful way. Something is going wrong. It's a little different. Yeah, maybe it isn't high enough. No, no, because you're so tall. You're so yeah. special. <laughs> okay, that's a wonderful way of putting it. <laughs> okay, so yeah. So music, well now, the interesting thing about music is that 
it can give you a very powerful sense of, in some very general sense, a feeling about things, right? Uh, mood is the wrong word because people use the word mood music, but atmosphere, very powerful atmosphere. So that, for instance, when you have a libretto to put to music for the opera, Da Ponte is coming to Mozart and saying, Wolfgang, make this into an opera, it's obvious that certain music really fit, I mean, really do something for the words that, that needs to be done, and other kinds of settings to music don't, right? So there is this very general direction of feeling that is there in, in music, which is made more precise by its being music being used in an opera, in a mass, in an oratorio, etc., whatever the, whatever the work is which involves words. Interesting thing happens in the Romantic period to this constellation. Whereas prior to that, people thought of purely instrumental music as incapable of the kind of precision of meaning that music can have if it's, if the, if it's the score of an opera or, the, or the, <clears throat> of an oratorio, etc. You get in late Mozart and particularly, of course, in Beethoven and Schubert, instrumental music breaking free and itself developing very deep and rich, more specific meanings, right? So, I mean, think of Beethoven's sympathy, uh, symphonies, and think of, I mean, maybe particularly the late sonatas and the late quartets, you know, the <clears throat> there's slow movement, the Heidegger Dankesang of the, of the Opus 132 Beethoven Quartet is really very, something going on here, some deeply meditative state. Uh, and so music is beginning to, instrumental, purely instrumental music is beginning to break away and move towards its own uh, clarification of what it's, it's about or specification of what it's about. But of course, it never does that completely, right? So we therefore get the very common idea in the Romantic period that certain of the most moving arts, like music, can never be totally translated into language explaining them. And we get this kind of back and forth, which Ricoeur talks about so very well, discours mixed, where you have on one hand the work of art, on the other hand interesting commentary by critics, on the other hand other kinds of works of music and so on going back, back and forth. But what you have here is a possible vector, which was indeed taken up, because in the case of music, I mean, you use a more technical philosophical expression, we, we talk about the intentional object of an emotion. Right? I'm sad, but I'm sad because <clears throat> my friend has deserted me. That's the object, that's what makes me sad. Or I'm angry because this other person has insulted me, or et cetera, et cetera. These are what people call the intentional object of the emotion. Now, with music, you can have very powerful evocation of the emotion with no clarification about the intentional object, unless it gets linked with, you know, it's the music of a score in an opera and so on. <clears throat> and Walter Pater, when he's famously said, all arts should approach to the condition of music, he was calling for a development in which the precision of the intentional object gets less and less and less until 
you are really beyond any capacity of saying what it is. Now, note Pater says all arts should. And in a certain important way, all arts, all of arts did, right? And certainly painting did, particularly when you get to the level of, of, uh, of abstraction. So that's one of the things that is going on here. But to turn back to the main line that I was talking about, you can see in this, um, in, in this new turn in music, Beethoven Schubert, for instance, the possibility for new kinds of works where somewhat enigmatic words get paired with somewhat enigmatic music and produce extremely powerful enigmatic <laughs> uh, work, like the Winterreise. Winterreise, you know, Schubert and uh, Müller's poetry, where it's really not clear what's going on, several interpretations of what is going on at various crucial moments, what, what drives the, the protagonist on and on, what makes it impossible for him to stop, and he would like to die but not, he goes on, etc. What is What's going on here? Well, you have here something which is very mysterious and it's created by both poetry and music working together. So this gives me another taking off point which is going to allow me to come back and ask certain questions of music. What's new of this new, of new age, I think, in which there are these, in the Schlegel sense, symbols, right? <clears throat> Works of art, poetry, music, which are operating as what opens us to something we otherwise would not have access to. And more than that, of course, it connects us to it. I mean, the same thing that I said about the earlier notions of the cosmic order, that connecting to it you know, strengthens you, makes you, makes it possible to be a better human being and so on, is true of these, uh, of these invoked orders. I mean, the, the whole force of the invoked order is that you feel connected to something very, very strong and meaningful to you. So uh, alongside the rise of the symbol in that sense goes the possibility of exploring otherwise previously unexplored meanings, unexplored significances, of which the whatever the Winterreise is telling us is one. But it also, let me stick with poetry now for, for a minute, gives us the possibility of various kinds of uh, reconnections with the world other than the one I invoked before with Wordsworth. There it's simply a matter of uh, there being some force in the universe with which we become reconnected by this, by this poem. But in other cases, if you like, the connection with our world happens in another way. Now there's a very famous, the most famous poem in the German language by Goethe, but, but uh, I, I mustn't, mustn't start reading German poetry in Toronto, but, um, but you know, this is the one about above all the mountaintops is that rest, repose, and so on. And, and the very powerful way it ends is very soon you will also have rest. The sense of an aspiration we didn't quite know we had before, 
which we get a, a meaning of by the experience of being in the mountain forest that he's describing to us in that poem, right? So here you get another kind of connection to the cosmos, something that is not terribly easy to pin down, but some kind of aspiration crucial to us, which we get from this experience of being in the dark, in the night, in the mountain forest. And I think too long to argue, but if somebody wants to argue this, let's talk about it later. I think that Keats's nightingale is another symbol of this kind. But what's interesting is that there are developments out of this in which poetry is doing something different for us that in one way or another reconnects or makes us reconciled with our world. One very powerful uh, example of this is Baudelaire. Baudelaire, in, but we have to track back for a couple of seconds and look at some issues that arise in the 19th century that didn't arise before. Issues about time, because the development of modern natural science and so on introduces us to an idea of cosmic time. Cosmic time, which is something totally different from the way we live time, particularly when you see more advanced theories in physics and so on. It, it, no question of living this time. It's one of the dimensions, or one of the many dimensions, of the unfolding of, of <clears throat> the physical universe. So the issue of lived time, what is like to live time, and the issue of what is like to live time inhumanly or humanly gets on the table. And you get, of course, philosophers like Bergson and later on Heidegger who are trying to rehabilitate live time and, and to describe what it is. But you also get great senses of time dislocation. Now, the, one of the great things about, about uh, uh, Baudelaire, Baudelaire starts off with one of his, I mean, many of his poems with a very powerful theme of, he calls spleen, we might call this melancholia or acadia, so on, the sense of utter flatness in the world and in your life and you don't know, you don't even know what's causing it, you don't even have a sense, that's what's really deeply painful about spleen or melancholia. You, if it was something you could put your finger on, at least you could, if you couldn't do something about it, at least you could rail against it, but you really can't even understand, can't even pinpoint what's making you feel so terrible. Well, in, the, in Baudelaire's spleen poems, he has this magnificent achievement. He, see, he, first of all, he's interpreting spleen in terms of a melody of lived time. It's just one thing after another. It's constant, if you like, change, novelty without any novelty, because it's just a meaningless extra event which doesn't relate to the earlier event. Benjamin in the 20th century picked up on that and said, this is the experience of people who have to work on uh, assembly lines in, in factories and so on, just one gesture after another, there's no meaning to it. And Baudelaire is really interpreting, seeing what underlies spleen as a melody of lived time. And so, what's really extraordinary about Baudelaire is his, in his poems on spleen, he gives a language to melancholy, right? He gives images, uh, you know, the, 
le ciel bas et lourd, le plafond, qui, le, le temps qui, le, qui continue. Comme, he said, it's covering me like I'm being snowed on and, and layer after layer of snow is falling on me as time goes by. I'm getting deeper and deeper into this. In doing that, he does two things. First of all, he gives you a sense of what melancholy really is. And precisely what makes it most painful is that you can't put your finger on anything. But secondly, the very music of the poetry begins to lift you out of this. And I think the thing I would recommend that you, that you read is uh, Le Cie, the, the swan, the famous swan poem, because it starts off precisely as a complaint about, <clears throat> about this, about that. Things are changing in Paris. His experience is Baron Haussmann, if you remember, right after the 1848 revolution, is making these beautiful new boulevards that you have in Paris that are so nice to drive down. But for Baron Haussmann, the main point was stopping revolutionary workers from making barricades, right? <laughs> that would never happen again after 1848. But so you have a sense of Paris as being deconstructed and constructed. Paris change, mais rien ne change dans ma mélancolie, right? And out of that comes a sense of links with other people, Andromaque, Andromaque, before the river, she's weeping, with a whole lot of other misfortunate, unfortunate human beings. You get moved along, this poem begins to move, and at one and the same time, you get this kind of lateral link of sympathy with so many other suffering people, and you also, the poem picks up the rhythm and you begin to move forward. So there you see something, some way of making us at home again in the universe, in the universe of time-space. It's not the same as being linked to the orders, the force through all things, but it's another kind of thing. Uh, if you just mind my, my going on, my going on a little bit more. Another, another connection. That another uh, way of thinking about this, which really connects with Hopkins' uh, notion of an inscape, the inscape or in stress, the idea. Now Hopkins is talking about living beings. You know, so the idea of a living being is kind of producing itself from out of itself in, in, in its life, right? It's, it's forcing itself into existence, and you, when you get the sense of that, that élan, Bergson would say élan vital, right? When you get this, but, but uh, <clears throat> Hopkins is writing in the 1860s, is well before Bergson. That's, if you get the sense of that, you can get a sense of, of the creature and of the kind of creature that it is, and more than kind, the very individual, because Hopkins, of course, had this idea from Duns Scotus that every individual has its own, its own nature. So I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dolphin, dappled on, drawn falcon, in his rising of the rolling level underneath him, steady air and striding high there. He goes on like that. This, of course, anticipates 20th century poetry by you know four or five decades, but you can see there the powerful, he's twisting the English language, creating new words in order to create this very strong sense of the of the of the inscape, the very the elan within the thing. 
if you move on now to Rilke, I think you see something, and this is going to permit a, a very, very speculative connection with visual art. If you move on to Rilke, you get his Neue Gedichte period, the new poems period of the early 1900s, where he seems to be doing the same thing, like the panther, putting you inside the, the being, in this case, inside the animals, that you feel what is going on there. Now, he was doing that when he was working with Rodin. And he was very inspired by Rodin. So this is partly uh, an aspiration, a poetic aspiration, which is, has been produced by somebody who was deeply impressed with a sculptor, right? with what a sculptor is doing. If you could uh, feel in Rodin's sculptures the inner life uh, rising to shape the, the outer shape. And is it possible to think of Cezanne in a similar light? I don't know. But, so here is possible connections. So what I'm doing here is just offering certain particular, I won't say applications, you might say particular transpositions of this symbol from, you might say, its original use in Wordsworth and also in Herlden, which was sort of connect us to a force running through everything, right? From that to quite different uses, but which have this in common, that they give us a very powerful living link to the world around us. Either the time-space world or certain things right, we, we see, can see into and feel connected to. And there are many, many other examples that I could give of this. And the, the interrogation that I have in my mind tonight, and maybe some of you will say this says nothing at all, this has no relevance. But if any of you had ideas that, of how there's something analogous or different, but done in different ways, I would be tremendously happy about that. So I want now to go and look at the, uh, the precisely the way in which all this connects up to the um, development in religion and spirituality we've been going through for two centuries since that time, and I think steadily increasing. And I want to go back, therefore, to these two languages, the language of the symbol, powerful experience, connecting to something we feel we can't deny but don't understand, and the level of underlying doctrine, which is always playing off against, or not always, but very often playing off against, or strengthening or weakening the, that other language. And I think you can get at how these two languages work together to alter, to some extent, the spiritual landscape of <clears throat> Western civilization. That, that uh, <clears throat> precisely, if you look at the famous distinction people very often invoke today, spiritual versus religious, what do people mean when they say I'm spiritual and not religious? Well, they mean something of this kind. I have real aspirations to move along a certain path of, of insight and training, which will in some way transform me, make me a better person, a fuller person, a more loving person, a more awake person, whatever, whatever the goal is. So this is some kind of path of self-transformation, but, okay, a not religious means 
that there are these things that this person is calling religions out there, which have authority, an authority in two domains around doctrine, dogma on one hand, and around what the practices ought to be. In other words, they, they also could be thought of as putting people on a path, <clears throat> but they're telling them exactly what the path is like, and they're telling them exactly what the handholds or footholds are that they should be stepping on or <clears throat> using in order to get to that path. And I don't want that. I mean, that's what the spiritual, not religious person is saying. I don't accept that. But I think that the possibility of that and the possibility of relating very differently to that comes from the development of these two languages, see, because there are all sorts of ways you can relate or not relate them. One way is the spiritual but not religious way of simply saying we're going to forget the underlying story, the doctrine, doctrinal story, or yeah, I mean, speculate sometime, but that doesn't play an important role in my spiritual life. Now you get, I mean, a really powerful example of this in the 19th century is, it comes from music, the way in which the great concert hall became people uh, very often comment on this, kind of big cathedrals of deeply meaningful experience which people went to with the same kind of awe and were uplifted by Beethoven's symphonies and so on. And, uh, that's, my, that's my experience too. I'm not talking from the outside. That's very much my experience. But you could stop there, right? Or you could be very suspicious of this from the standpoint of an orthodox religious doctrine and a set of paths and, and measures and think there's something very dangerous and very dubious about this. Or you can use your, if you like, spiritual experience of the of symbol and poetry, music and art to ask yourself further questions about what you really believe underlying. Or, case of Hopkins, you can come around to a new kind of take on the faith you're already in, um, <clears throat> which is exactly what he did when he joined the Jesuits, right? So you get all these different ways in which people can work with these two levels, I mean, refusing the deeper level together, or maybe exploring it, or maybe <clears throat> really breaking through to a new version of it, right? But this, when, when you take the Hopkins kind of case, you see, you see that there's a great strain here because there is this older way of living Christian faith, which is the one that became normalized in Christendom. That is Christendom when Christian faith meant under different denominations, whole societies were inspired and informed by Christianity or that version, that particular confessional version of it, right? So there it's pretty well laid down how you ought to approach and practice this religion. is something, I mean, the poor Jesuit superiors of, of Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, they must say, what's going on here? You know, <clears throat> what has this got to do? And half the time Hopkins was torn because he wasn't sure if it did have, you know, if he should be spending his time on this. So you get, out of this, you get the pattern that I think we see in Western spirituality and religion 
today, which I try to describe in a secular age, you get a pattern in which some people are not interested in either spirituality or religion, sure, yeah. Some people are pursuing a spiritual path but definitely don't want religion. Some people are trying to pursue that path further in order to arrive at some doctrinal position. And some people have come in a new route to an older faith, like Hopkins, by, as it were, going right through this new world of, of symbols. I'm, once again, I mean in the, in the, uh, in the Schlegel sense. Right? And now this causes great disruption in existing churches, really, because the idea is that there is only one road of access, that very often arises in settled forms of Christendom. There is only one road of access, the one we all know about. You've got to take all this, you know, absolutely, totally. So you have, at one and the same time, one feature of our religious world is great tension between what people call religious conservatives, it's not exactly the right word, but I mean, people that are sticking to that model, and people that are very drawn to what I call searching, I mean, going on a path where they're gonna see where it, where it leads, even if, even if they have the intention, they want, or they would like to get back to this historic faith, they're gonna do it their way. So this tremendous tension we see going on. But we also see something new in among those who are taking the second path, who are spiritually exploring, if you like, which is largely done, of course, through relation to art in the broadest sense. And that is that a new kind of ecumenicism grows up between such people where they're unthreatened by the fact that people are exploring by different paths, but are genuinely desirous of finding out what it's like. And so you get extraordinary exchanges going on today, which I think would have been inconceivable a century ago. That is, people of different faith, different practices, or people even including atheists, get together and just say, well, I mean, you know, what makes you, what makes you what inspires you? Try to, try to make me understand, right? And which I think has tremendous, myself, I'm very, as you can imagine, very much uh, in, in favor of that. But I think you can see a link between the general pattern I've been describing coming from the injection, if you like, of symbolic, in the, that's this sense, poetry, music, art, into, the, into this world, and then, of course, yeah, I forgot, there are people, there are many in the catalog who want to continue an historic faith, but now have the really powerful intuition that the ways of doing it are not connecting to people today, right? So there's a number of, of painters, very interesting painters in the, in the exhibition, or at least in the, in the catalog of that category, right? They're trying to find new ways, for instance, of, I mean, Van Gogh, uh, in a way, new ways of portraying the universe, 
or uh, is his name Denis? I, I hadn't heard of him before. Catholic who was trying to find new ways of painting Christ and Christ's life that can somehow connect to this work. See, there all these are different ways of dealing with you might call the double trackedness of our modern culture, the track of spiritual exploring through art in this sense of the symbol and the track of dwelling as you, you know, seeking and dwelling is a term I took from an American sociologist of religion with no someone and it's really quite good if you allow for the fact that a lot of us are both, <laughs> but <clears throat> dwelling is just being in the original house and so on and continuing seeking is trying to move through a path of exploration. So all these are different ways in which the double trackedness of our culture makes possible, along with other things, of course, along with freedom, etc., etc., makes possible something like the religious, spiritual, slash spiritual scene that we live in uh, today. And we, I think we can see that this is, uh, you can't say a result, I mean, cause and effect doesn't work quite like that way, but the, the development of this post-romantic poetics and then music and then art created the conditions in which the present scene of religious, spiritual coexistence or, <laughs> or non-coexistence could arise and be what it is. All right, so I just before I totally go beyond all <clears throat> acceptable limits, I'd just like to say a few words about what's coming to me about these um, about the, the, the paintings that I saw both in the catalog and right downstairs a few minutes ago, I think you can see tremendous clear analogy between that Wordsworth uh, poem on one hand and a great deal of these paintings on the other, uh, Turner and, and uh, <clears throat> Van Hawkins and, which, and uh, Monet, in which you see Thanks to the painting, I mean, the painting is there operating as a symbol. You see shining through the world around us. One day up there, I think I can't see, but uh, <clears throat> we see shining through the world around us something very much deeper. But it is like the Wordsworth force, it's something which is very much under described, sometimes enigmatic. Uh, uncertain and certainly not proven, but in, there's a kind of striving, and you know that from Monet himself and the exploration of Buddhism and so there's a kind of striving here to see something, something deeper. And then there's another feature of a Baudelaire that I, I should have mentioned earlier, I'll mention now, and I wonder if it has an analog. Baudelaire, in the process of these magnificent poems on spleen and Lucine and so on, does something which T.S. Eliot later very much praised. Um, and here's where I'm going to lose my way. But Eliot wrote about how Baudelaire can describe to us the world of a very sordid, <clears throat> uh, ugly, urbanizing, universe, but he takes these images and he says he raises them to the first intensity. Am I going to, this is the, this is the lecturer's nightmare, terribly important quote, which 
cannot find, desperately searching, uh, take my word for it. <laughs> it's a great quote. He, he, um, he can raise these images of ugliness, so you have the first intensity, so that you see through them beyond to a kind of, uh, possible transformation. In a way, the seeing is doing that, right? A possible transformation, taking you beyond it, precisely by going through, in a very intense form, these, um, these very uh, ugly, negative, uh, images of this ugly negative reality. And of course that, I mean, the wasteland doesn't exist, uh, proof rock doesn't exist without that kind of thing. Uh, Eliot learned that from him. And when I was going through the exhibition just a few minutes ago, and I was seeing these stark uh, landscapes of the First World War, I was wondering, is there something Baudelaire analogous in these that seeing the, the most ugly, bare, uh, stripped down, destroyed <clears throat> world is, maybe I'm dreaming, see this is where I need your help and uh, to see how to read these paintings. There's something analogous to that, right? So another connection that seemed to me very powerful was from another Baudelaire, I'm really Baudelaire, uh, uh, Obsessed, but this is the Baudelaire poem, Les Correspondances, right? Which is quoted in the catalog. <clears throat> and there, of course, that's a, a reference back to the earlier notions of order where there were affinities between things and so on. And, but he's describing it in terms of a wood, of a forest, right? In which, in which winds are going through and you have a, in forêt de symbol, a forest of, symbols here, you see, this, this word symbol keeps recurring in its very specific romantic sense, even by people who don't necessarily read Schlegel or anyone else, it becomes part of the, <clears throat> of the world, of the air that people breathe. And so I, it was quoted in the catalog and people were pointing out a number of different paintings where the notion of a sacred wood containing everything. This, but of course, this is a dream of the world, integral world of meaningful cosmos, which we know we've lost, and which all these attempts at creating symbols is meant to, restore is the wrong word, is meant to recover some successor to, recover some <clears throat> experience like that. Because, and this is the last word I want to say, I, I really should stop here, because this was a kind of disenchantment which always raises the desire for re-enchantment, right? In a different way in our world. And it makes us, okay, one last, I promise last word. One thing that we really have to, makes me very much want to explore this, is there's obviously something very deep and interesting about human beings which we really haven't understood. And when we go back and look at other societies, tribal societies like the Aboriginals in, in Canada, Emily Carr is not coming to mind, their sense of the world around them is living, right? I'm not saying this is correct, nobody knows which the correct version is, but somehow this seems to me a working out in their world of 
what we are trying to work out in, in Wordsworth's world and Monet's world and so on. So it would be, I don't promise that I'll have solved this problem before I finish my book, no. but it would be great if we could make progress in solving this problem. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Charles, for that incredible talk. Um, we do have some time for questions. It's my experience that after a brilliant talk, people are stunned into silence. So take a moment and think of one. We have two microphones in the room, and if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand, and we'll bring a microphone to you. Uh, yes, very... Um, hi there. Uh, great presentation up here. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, it, of, of the three genres you had, uh, poetics, art, and music, it seems as if, as you're describing, and I think the painting on the right is a good example of the direction towards kind of a modern art in which that isn't really anything. You can't really say what it is, but it draws emotion for us. Uh, you know, we get some emotional reaction just as you described with the, um, with the music. I guess I'm wondering, why do you think, at least my perspective, the poetics was the last to this train? It wasn't until... E. E. Cummings in the 20th century that we got really abstract. Why did it take longer for that versus the art and the music? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that um, it did take longer. See, because in a certain sense, poetry and music were maybe off on this track, if the track is defined as I want to define it, with the notion of the symbol. That, is, that it's invoking for you an order that's very unclear what it is or whether it really is, as against an order that you already recognize and is already part of your <clears throat> cultural background. So you find poetry and music doing this plainly very early on. I mean, the beginning of the 19th century, end of the 18th century. Now, um, then you get, you're right, you're right, but you get in poetry a series of rupture of form of forms. So um, <clears throat> you get the romantics themselves think of themselves as breaking up the heroic couplets, breaking up the forms of, of, you know, <clears throat> of uh, neoclassical poetry in order to be able to create their symbols. And you, you go on and on doing this. But the, the order and the pace at which this is done and the manner in even different European uh, poetry traditions is very different. So take someone like Mallarmé. Mallarmé, I mean, I could talk a long time about something really strange about what Mallarmé is doing in the, you know, the, the sonnet on X, Y, X, right? But he's absolutely got a perfect sonnet form. He's got a perfect rhyme form. Then along came later symbolists in the later 19th century, and Mallarmé was astonished. And on a touché au verre, in one lecture he gave in Austria, you know, people have touched the proper form of the. <clears throat> so you get this tremendously inventive poet, mind-bendingly inventive poet, in one way, who is not necessarily touching, literally touching and undoing the forms. Right? So the whole process of dissolution of forms in order to say new things, well, Walt Whitman is already doing this, of course, to a 
very great extent in the middle, mid 19th century. It's very hard to know who's behind whom, is what I'm trying to say. Even, you know, poetry isn't a single thing when you move from the German context to the English context to the Italian context to the French context. And the manner in which they break out of forms in one way and not in another way is really something very extremely hard to follow. Thank you very much for an amazing presentation. Um, you talked quite a bit about um, being on the spiritual, people being on the spiritual path, seeking some kind of transformation. And you used the word transformation a few times in the talk. And I'm wondering if you think it's possible that the poets, the artists, the musicians that can lead us with this, uh, this uh, underlying language to these experiences, these direct experiences of this force that you talked about, could it be possible that they have already had a transformation of consciousness that allows them to then let us see through the veil in a certain sense into this other world? No, no I mean, that certainly is, is possible and it sometimes happens. I mean, look, Blake, well, it's not clear exactly because we don't know enough about Blake, but one suspects that there were some very powerful experiences of sort of visions even that might have been lying behind his, his very innovative work, both, both uh, visual art and, and, uh, and poetry. <clears throat> but um, I think in very, very many cases, this isn't so. I mean, it wasn't so in the case of Wordsworth. Is it so, in, not really in the case of Monet, in a sense it's, it's the searching there and I read a line in the catalog, which is very interesting, from, quoted from Evelyn Underhill. And this introduces the issue of two kinds of mysticism. I and mean, there are kinds of mysticism where we want to speak of really totally out of ordinary experiences that you, know, you just couldn't credit normally and it's even hard to credit when they happen. Something like Teresa of Avila, for instance. <clears throat> and there, what they very often give rise to is a kind of description which is not, hasn't got the power of a symbol at all, it's just saying what happened. And a lot of the cases where you have very powerful symbols, they, are, they don't grow from that. So probably there's absolutely no rule here at all, <clears throat> but everything is, all combinations probably exist. I am a philosophy professor. Yeah. I wanna know, uh, thank you very much for your excellent talk. Um, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and Italian philosopher uh, Benedetto Croce said one day uh, religion will be replaced by art. And uh, I'm wondering why do you bring uh, uh, two rival enterprise religion and art uh, close to another rather than um, keeping them separate and treating and talking, them, uh, talking about them separately? Thank you. Well, because people are always moving back and forth between them. I mean, some people, yes, they do want to, I mean, they want to refuse all what they see of as religious underlying stories or religious doctrines. Some people do that. Other people are searching. Other people move back and forth. The, the, the fact is that people are, I mean, these languages are always talking to each other. And once again, many of the, you know, people in the catalog and a lot of them on the wall, people like Emily Carr, like George O'Keefe, uh, these were people who were on one hand 
very moved by an underlying story. In one case, uh, Emily Carr, Orthodox Christianity. In another case, the Theosophy, right, on one hand, but also very powerfully moved to do those paintings on the other. And I tried to point out earlier in making reference to a couple of those painters that these really were separate operations for them in the sense that they, when they were, they were maybe moved in this direction to try to, as it were, see the mystery in this mountain by their theosophical belief or in this forest, by their Christian belief. But when they're doing the actual painting, they weren't sort of running through the doctrine in their minds. They were, they were looking, looking very strongly at the, at the forest. And symbols were, so were coming to them, which would open up a depth channel. It, it, it's, it's something, I think, extremely I don't see them as rivals, therefore, you see, because so many people are working with both. And rivalry, I think, either comes from people who have a lot of dogmatic and religious feelings on one hand, or very dogmatic and not very tolerant believers on the other. Otherwise, they, don't, they aren't seen, they aren't lived as rivals in the lives of lots of people. Yes, hello. Um, <clears throat> I just wonder if you agree with a position by George Steiner, who says that, um, in a few words, it's only about half a page of his book, Errata, if I remember. Uh, he says that um, uh, words are a much better means of communications, not only of meaning, but even of emotions. They relate more to the human condition and something I found surprising, in that sense, they are far superior to music. Yeah. So I wonder what you think of that. Yeah. I'm baffled, I'm baffled. <laughs> uh, uh, he's a writer. <laughs> what? Thanks very much for uh, your very interesting talk. Okay. Hi, yeah. <laughs> Towards the end, you said something along the lines of um, the process of de-enchantment also then kind of begets a process of re-enchantment. And most of the uh, painters and writers that you were speaking about tonight are from the 1900s or 1800s. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how that re-enchantment process is um, kind of being lived out today in our society. I, mean, I think it's, it's the uh, attempt. I mean, it's not a process that can be that are completed um, because in the sense of recreating a world in which everybody accepted certain underlying beliefs and a certain notion of what the depth reality was. I think we're totally outside that possible world, outside a Christendom, if you, if you mean about a civilization, which is informed by this. So what re-enchantment means is an, an attempt to increase our insight to, from this increased insight to live in more in symbiosis with and connection with these deeper forces. And this is something that 
people are going to be trying to do in their lives, individuals but also certain groups. But it's not something that I can foresee the whole society doing together anymore. Right? So it's, you know, it's something that's always starting up and it's, so these paintings, you see, or the poems that I was referring to, are going to remain as very powerful sources of inspiration for people starting out on this kind of path. I mean, that's their, their religious or spiritual significance lies there. <clears throat> I was just, uh, I was just actually meaning to remind you to hold you to your promise to tell us your counter argument to the deflationary or reductionist uh, account of how we experience art, music, and stuff. So basically, going back to you, thank you. No, I mean, I, it's a, a complicated argument, but just, uh, I'm glad you raised that because I really wanted to say that. I mean, if you look at uh, what human beings do, right, obviously, when, when they go out in the country for the holiday, when they go out in the mountains in the wilderness, when they follow Thoreau and thinking that in, in wildness is the salvation of the world, when they garden, they, you know, mix their labor with the growing plants, what are they getting out of that? And if you try to read that, it's some kind of very profound sense that that is a necessary completion, a necessary, that, like a fundamental potentiality of human beings that they're carrying out. So if you begin to look, I mean, this is a hermeneutic argument, in other words, an interpretive argument. What's going on? Or from another point of view, what is going on when Baudelaire is feeling this profound spleen and then is somehow getting beyond it, partly through his poetry, right? <clears throat> uh, so there's some, kind of, there's some kind of felt need here for meaningful lived time. And that, you know, to me, that my sense of what's going on there is something very powerful and very deep kind of ethical demand of human beings, and therefore not something that can be simply dismissed in a way which has no, uh, no implications no, for the world outside my skin. Right? If it really is like auditory cheesecake, the whole thing happens inside the <laughs> this palate. And, right? But <clears throat> if this kind of reconnection is really an important human need and aspiration. So it's not a knockdown argument. There are no knockdown arguments here. But it's a patient, hermeneutic, interpretive argument. <clears throat> and from that point of view, that kind of remark is absurd. <laughs> and, yeah. What a great place to end. Um, please join me all in thanking Charles Taylor for his talk to <laughs>